Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Erica Christakis about her book, The Importance of Being Little, What Preschoolers Really Need from Grownups. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, Erica, I was wondering if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. So I am a former preschool teacher and I'm also a parent of three children who are now in their 20s. Um, but I got into preschool teaching sort of late, relatively late in my career. I started off working in the public health field. And I think that really helped influence the work that I did in my book. Because from a very early stage, I think I was aware that schooling and learning are different things or can be different things. And because I started my career sort of looking at health and wellness and families and their influence on children. Before I became a teacher, I worked in that um, area. You know, it, it just really influenced my perspective on how kids learn and where they learn. Um, so I became a preschool teacher and then ended up uh, teaching at the college level, um, early childhood education and policy courses, and now I'm doing more and more writing about early learning. So I have a somewhat eclectic background. Um, I also was, uh, in addition to being a preschool teacher, also a preschool director. So I think I have a pretty good perspective about what it means to be a teacher and a parent and someone trying to make changes in a system that isn't always very receptive to those kinds of changes that support kids. So um, how did you come to write your latest book, The Importance of Being Little? Well, this is my first book, I must admit. Um, and I, you know, it's interesting. I had always seen um, kind of a disconnect between, on the one hand, a lot of um, books, sort of parenting memoirs and things that really focus on parents' experiences with their children on the one hand, mm-hmm. and then a lot of books um, focused on teaching that are really kind of more designed as curriculum guides and, and ways for teachers to do better in the classroom. And it seemed to me that there was a little bit of a gap in terms of helping um, parents and also teachers to some extent to really understand to the extent that we can as adults the world of the young child. So I thought, well, I'd really like to write a book that tries to kind of get into that experience of being a little kid, which is really where the title comes from, the importance of being little. Um, this idea that, you know, early childhood is a kind of special and magical time that's really worthy in its own right. And I think sometimes as adults, we tend to view that life stage as preparation for um, for later life, you know, and we yeah. think of early education as a way to prepare kids to be successful in an adult world, which is, of course, true. But I also think there's a danger in viewing young childhood, early childhood that way, where we sort of lose the young child. So I thought, well, to the extent that anyone my age can do this, I'm going to try to really open up that world of young children and try to help others see what, what I'm seeing. 
obviously as an adult, but, um, you know, the potential and the promise of early childhood. Yeah, I'd like to follow up on that a little bit. Um, what do you think it, it is like to be little? Um, what, do you, what do you remember from your own experience um, being so young, or what do you think uh, we as adults have forgotten about? Well, that's a really interesting question, and for someone my age, it's a little hard sometimes to go back in time. But, you know, one thing that I try to do um, sometimes when I talk with groups of parents or teachers is I try to get um, the adults in the room to reflect on times when they felt they were either overestimated or underestimated mm-hmm. as a young child. And the reason I say that is because I think a lot of the problems that we have understanding children is that we're a little bit mismatched in what we think kids can do and what they can't do. Um, and, and we'll get into that in a moment when we talk a little bit more about sort of what goes on in preschool classrooms and in people's homes and so on. But but I think generally I would say that, uh, you know, we often miss that sort of peak learning zone where children are really able and capable, and they're so um, intelligent and creative. And we, we miss that peak learning zone because we either overestimate kids or we underestimate. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, children in in preschool classrooms today are often very overtaxed, you know, sort of logistically and practically. You know, they have very busy schedules. They move quickly from one activity to another. They're very awkward transitions, multiple transitions in the day. A lot of expectations are placed on them to get along with people in the room, you know, they deal with a lot of noise, a lot of visual stimulation. If you walk into a preschool classroom, there's a ton of stuff on the walls, very cluttered. Um, You know, adults actually wouldn't really tolerate, or most adults wouldn't tolerate that level of visual stimulation um, and auditory stimulation. But in the preschool world, we sort of view this as um, quality, which is kind of interesting. And so I think, you know, in that sense, we overestimate kids. But then in a really fundamental way, we actually underestimate children in the sense that we don't really trust them um, to have the kind of profound um, conversations and creative exploration that they are capable of. We often don't give them a chance to resolve problems um, between themselves, among themselves. We, we often kind of whisk activities away at the first sign of boredom, uh, which is really a mistake because kids sometimes need to work through the sense of being bored in order to engage more deeply in something. And, of course, nowadays, um, early childhood classrooms have changed so much in terms of our academic expectations that we're kind of going for what I call um, rather superficial measures of learning. So there's a lot of focus in, in classrooms on on what I call naming and labeling. You know, what day is it? And, what you know, what are your colors? And what shapes do you know? And that is actually a pretty shallow uh, way of engaging with kids. You know, they're capable of something much deeper than that if we give them the space and the time to play, um, you know, for example, if they're building a castle out of blocks or, or they're building, um, you know, a, a pulley system or making a ramp with cars and, and blocks or, you know, digging in the dirt and looking for uh, worms. Uh, you know, these are looking under, I saw a child just the other day um, in a classroom looking at a pile of sand um, through a microscope, and then she went and drew a picture of the multicolored grains of sand, which, of course, were not visible as multi-hued, um, you know, to the naked eye. That's the kind of activity that we need to give kids more exposure to. Um, so getting back to your question, I mean, I think there's this mismatch um, where we overestimate kids pragmatically and we underestimate them 
intellectually and emotionally. Uh, and when I look back on that in my own childhood, and I guess I would encourage all adults to do this, you know, think back to times when you were underestimated or when you were overestimated. You know, I remember having to take a swimming test when I was six, and I knew how to swim. And my camp counselor threw me in a pond, which seemed the size of an ocean to me. Um, and, you know, I went back and looked at that pond as an adult, and it, it was this dinky little little watering hole. But, you know, in my mind, it was like the Pacific Ocean. And I was really terrified, and it's still a memory that is so mm. frightening to me. And I think I was, um, you know, it was a mismatch. I mean, I may have technically had skills, but I really, I was afraid and I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a good experience for me. But conversely, I remember um, one of my brothers, who's a lot younger than I am, about six or seven years younger than me, uh, was born prematurely and I was allowed to go into the ICU and to hold him and I had to, you know, get dressed up in surgical scrubs and all this. And it was a moment of power where I felt, you know, I was being taken very seriously as a kind of grown-up kid holding this little tiny premature baby. Um, and I think those kinds of memories, you know, we can sort of activate those and think about, you know, are we being underestimated? Are we being overestimated? And and I, to me, that's a very helpful way to understand young children, you know, because we, we often put our own sort of grown-up lens on things and assume that, um, you know, making lots of transitions in the day is no big deal. Well, it, it's actually really stressful for a four-year-old. Um, mm-hmm. And conversely, kids, you know, really do talk about the darndest things, as they like to say, um, if you let them. You know, they have very profound conversations. Um, and I'll say one more thing about that. You know, we know from the scientific evidence that children who are engaged in what I would call productive play, so, um, you know, kids who are talking, who are, let's say, pretending, or doing role-playing and fantasy play, or, you know, developing a game with complex rules, um, using using props in a symbolic way, you know, like grabbing a block and pretending that it's a cell phone or, you know, that, that kind of productive play is really associated with um, much stronger language, you know, stronger, more sophisticated language structures, uh, better vocabulary. Um, you know, there's a lot of math skills involved in that kind of complex play. So it's, you know, when we give kids the chance to be little kids, um, it's not only a good thing because it makes us feel warm and fuzzy and, you know, we're letting kids be kids. It, it's actually linked to very powerful academic and social outcomes that we should care a lot more about. So I do want to make it clear that it's sort of a win-win, you know, if we can if we can refocus our efforts to let kids, you know, behave naturally like kids. It, it's... Um, there are a lot of dividends, you know, and they're not just um, sort of things that make us feel good. They, they actually help children develop intellectually and academically as well. Um, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier in your comments when you're talking about the, the quality of preschool programs. Um, so as you walk into a lot of preschool classrooms, you see uh, lots of things on the walls. And kids are, are naming and labeling things. And this reflects shallow learning. This is learning maybe students can do quickly and, and adults can certainly assess really quickly, but it's not um, indicative of high quality instruction. So as, as parents are, are looking for preschools for their children, what sort of things should they be looking for? Right. Well, and before I answer that, I think it's important to point out that a lot of families don't have a choice. Mm. Of, you know, they may know what to look for. Or they may learn about what 
what are good quality indicators. Um, but they either can't afford the care or they uh, live in a community where such a program is not available, and it makes more sense for the family to make a compromise. I mean, I, I worry sometimes when I hear families saying, oh, there's a really great program, but, you know, it's a 45-minute drive and it's really expensive. Um, you know, that isn't necessarily the best choice. So that's just mm-hmm. my caveat that, um, and, and I'll get to this, I hope, in more detail, but, you know, the, the most important fuel for learning is relationships, and the family relationship is the most important. So I think, you know, whatever parents can do to protect their relationship with their child, sometimes that means compromising on uh, a preschool, you know, because you need to protect, uh, whether it's financially or logistically, um, the relationship that you have with your own child. So I hope parents understand that they, even if they aren't able to make the best choices, sometimes that is, in fact, the best choice, if you follow me. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that caveat that parenting is, is so important in the early years, and the relationships are so important, um, there are things we know about quality. And the story about quality is interesting because you know, there are, um, I don't want to get too technical here, but we have sort of two different ways of looking at quality. And one way is to look at so-called structural variables. So you look at class size and ratio of children to teacher and, um, you know, the kinds of materials in the classroom and, you know, the educational level of the teacher and what kind of certification she or he might, uh, although it's usually she, uh, might or might not have. Interestingly, even though those seem like they would be very important variables, um, they turn out actually not to be very important. They have either no effect on quality or they have very indirect effect. Um, indirect in the sense that if you have, you know, 50 kids in a room, um, it, you know, you're not going to be able to develop close relationships with kids. But, but they are indirect effects of quality. So what really matters is sometimes harder to see, and that is um, that the teacher really needs to know children on two levels. The teacher needs to know child development in general terms. So you want a teacher who knows, you know, this is what a three-year-old typically does. This is what a four-year-old typically looks like. But the teacher also has to know the individual child because there's so much variation in child development. And even within one child, you know, children change on a daily basis, even on a minute-by-minute basis. Um, and families all are different. Kids are different. You know, we have different family cultures, different um, challenges. So I think that it's really important that, and, and when I say I think this, this is what the research shows, that, that good quality in preschool settings has less to do with um, the, uh, like I said, the structural variables such as, you know, class size and educational background of teacher. And it really is about does the teacher understand child development, and can the teacher translate that child development into effective curriculum, and does she really understand the children in her care? Now, it sounds like it would be hard to measure those things, but it's actually not hard to measure them. Um, there are all kinds of good measures of quality. You know, we can actually measure the quality of relationships between children and teachers, um, is the teacher using an open-ended kind of conversational tone? By that, I mean, do you ask a child, tell me about your drawing? You know, that's very different than saying, oh, you made a nice house. You know, if you say, tell me about your drawing, you're inviting the child in to um, to talk, to reflect. You're sort of putting the child in charge. That's just an example of 
um, the quality of relationship that, that we can really measure. Um, now, parents don't always see that. You know, I think when, when parents walk into a program, you know, we are cued, um, and I'm a parent myself um, of older kids, but, you know, I get this. We are cued to respond to certain things on the wall in a certain kind of busy atmosphere, very visually overstimulating. Um, and so we need to kind of look beyond some of that and really look at what is the quality of the relationships. Um, you know, are, am I hearing lots of open-ended conversation, not just one dimension, one directional conversation? You know, sometimes you hear a lot in classrooms, um, you hear a lot of teacher-directed conversation. Um, you know, a lot of directions, time to clean up, good job, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of convers- not conversational language. So I would be looking for, um, you know, am I hearing kids laughing? Am I hearing them telling? Is the teacher pausing to listen to, you know, one of those sort of loopy conversations, you know, the stories that little kids tell that sort of go on and on and on? You know, is the teacher pausing to hear something like that? Um, I think conversation is really kind of a good um a good measure, actually. Like, what's what's the vibe in the classroom? You know, are you hearing lots of um, evidence of friendships, of relationships? And that is, um, you know, that's really where the quality is. And it, interestingly, isn't necessarily connected, although it often is, but it isn't necessarily connected to some of these things that we associate with, with quality. Uh, and so parents, you know, need to look kind of beyond the stuff on the walls and um, which often can be a real impediment to learning as I said it's very distracting often it's very um, focused on kind of rote and shallow learning uh, you know one example is uh, the daily tracking of the calendar which mm-hmm. is an absolutely iconic thing that every preschool does and if I could do one thing in my career at this point it would be to get teachers to really rethink you know, this, the calendar work, um, I don't know if you know what I'm referring oh, yeah. to, but, you know, kids sit in a circle, and it's, what day are we on? And then they point to the calendar. Well, kids really do need to learn a sense of number. Absolutely. It's very important in the preschool years, and they need to understand patterns. Uh, but, in fact, doing calendar work is, um, it's actually a perfect example of this sort of mismatch that I talk about where we both underestimate kids and overestimate them. Because one study showed that after a whole year of calendar work, preschoolers still didn't know what day it was. Um, And yet, it's also quite pedantic and I think quite boring for many kids to sit in a circle every day, day after day. And sometimes it's year after year because kids are going to preschool earlier in the form of daycare, you know, sometimes starting at, well, starting at infancy. But, you know, sometimes these calendar kinds of activities are starting at age two or three. And so a child might have, before starting kindergarten at five or six, you know, have already had a couple of years of this sort of rote instruction. And if we're not even getting, you know, if we're not even getting understanding out of it, then then there's really a, a problem. So I think there are much more sort of hands-on ways to get kids to practice, um, to experiment with the concept of numbers and patterns and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of things that we just reflexively assume are associated with, with quality, and I would really urge parents to kind of look beyond that. Um, another area that I think really needs some rethinking is the whole approach to um, crafts, what we call arts and crafts mm-hmm. in preschool, um, which is another area where we are cued as parents to kind of 
respond to those cutesy projects. And the most um, classic one, I think, that probably everyone would resonate with is the uh, Thanksgiving turkey that we draw. You know, you trace the hand and put the little fluorescent feathers on it. And, you know, these kinds of activities often uh, are met with sort of amusement and fondness from parents. Um, but we need to look more deeply at them. Like, what is the child learning? What is that kind of craft? I call them cutesy crafts. You know, I don't think they're actually real crafts. I think they're just sort of artifacts in a way. And, you know, what is that um, telling us about children's development? What what can we see in the child in an activity like that? Often, you don't see very much. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, there are things... Getting back to the quality question, there are a lot of things that we are really cued to respond to and to assume are measures of quality. And I think um, if I can help people to kind of maybe look beyond them and get more deeply into um, the quality of relationships that we are fostering or, or failing to foster, that's where we really see signs of learning. It's interesting. It, it, it seems like... a we need to work on changing the expectation of parents, uh, not just changing teaching, because in many ways, teachers are responding to the incentives of their students' parents. Um, parents expect kids to come home and know, uh, you know, a list of colors or the months of the year to have these artifacts to put on their refrigerator or to frame up in their house. And if instead they're spending their time doing imaginative play or having interesting conversations, um, parents might not know what to do with that or how to appreciate that kind of learning. And so we have to show them the way. Absolutely. And, you know, I I can speak as a parent when my oldest son was in preschool, which was more than 20 years ago. um, You know, I was one of those parents. I wanted the refrigerator art Mm -hmm. and I was very uptight about how many letters my kid knew. Um, And and what I didn't know was that actually um, it's this deep exploratory relationship-based learning that would enable him to learn more letters, you know, than just kind of sitting and doing a worksheet. I mean, I didn't really understand that concept, and I didn't understand the idea that I could wait, that I didn't need to hurry my child, that in fact there were greater dividends intellectually and emotionally and academically if I did allow him to develop at his own pace. I was very lucky that I had a, that my son had a teacher who I feature in the book. Um, she was a real master teacher, Marie Randazzo, at the University of Chicago Lab School. And, you know, she really guided me, and she was highly effective in explaining to parents, you know, where the signs of learning were. I remember my son would come home in his backpack with these weird little things. He had um, little corks, you know, that from wine bottles and I, that had little pinpricks in them. And I thought this was, you know, incredibly weird. Uh, I could not understand why my kid was coming home with, with wine bottle corks, um, you know, or he had like a little piece of paper covered in paper clips. And, you know, Marie, this teacher, helped me understand that he had been floating the corks in a water table and he was experimenting with building boats out of materials and seeing how they would tilt and how they would float. I think you need a guide to tell you these things. And a lot of times teachers, for all kinds of reasons, have difficulty translating that kind of learning to parents. Now, sometimes they themselves have not been trained to see deep learning in um, a play-based curriculum or, you know, in the kind of exploration I'm describing, like a child looking under a magnifying glass at, um, you know, a feather as opposed to making a Thanksgiving turkey hand tracing. Um, you know, there sometimes the teacher herself has not had 
um, a chance to really understand that there's another way of teaching. But oftentimes the teacher does sort of see uh, the deep learning that can unfold through the kind of curriculum I'm talking about, but they feel enormous pressure um, from all kinds of uh, places. Um, and we can talk about that probably in a moment, about what those pressures are. Uh, and also they often don't really know how to translate that to to parents, you know, and to right. say, I mean, it's much easier to tell a parent, here's your, uh, you know, print we made out of apple slices, you know, when you cut the apple in half and stick it in paint and then make a print, which, you know, is not a, it's, it's a cool thing to do, but it's much easier to say here, you know, here's Johnny's little, Apple print than to say, you know, Johnny spent an hour today mixing paint colors, uh, and he was really interested in the way the blue and the yellow mixed together. Um, that takes a little bit more courage on the part of the teacher, and I think more patience and understanding on the part of the parent to say, you know, maybe I won't get a drawing for the refrigerator today, mm-hmm. but something is going on that seems meaningful to me. And we all need to kind of re-educate ourselves about what that looks like. Um, you know, I always say with respect to um, an arts-based curriculum that the question we need to be asking is not is the child making something, but is the child making meaning? And those can be two different things. You know, sometimes it actually makes more sense to let a child explore in depth with, um, you know, let's say uh, I talk in, in the book about experimenting with play, you know, that actually takes a lot of time to really understand how to use a material like clay. What happens when you add water? What happens when you try to stick two pieces of clay together? You know, they might just break off when they dry. Well, how do you make them stick permanently? You know, there's a lot of kind of intellectual processing that goes on when you uh, introduce a new material to a child. But in today's preschool environment, we tend to go for the kind of assembly line approach where we say, come on over and make your coffee mug, you know, it's Mother's Day. Um, and that is very product-focused, where we're, we want people to make something. Um, and, you know, a meaning-based curriculum doesn't exclude the possibility of making a coffee mug for Mother's Day. But, I mean, it certainly doesn't. In fact, it's more likely that you might ultimately make a much more interesting and even prettier coffee mug if you had time to really learn how to use the material. Right. But my it doesn't point guarantee is, it. It doesn't guarantee it. And that and we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is the goal? Is the goal to just kind of produce this mass production? Um, you know, I, I actually kind of joked about, um, you know, the tiger mother, Amy mm-hmm. Chua, who wrote about, you know, there was a notorious episode that she described where she sent her daughters um, the card that her daughter had made. I think it was a birthday card. And she sent it back um, for a revision, you know. And, and she was met with a lot of ridicule for doing this because, you know, why would you ever ask a little kid, you know, why would you pass judgment on a little child's piece of artwork? But, you know, I actually think she was kind of on to something, which is that um, there is a sort of meaningless approach sometimes to kids' uh, artistic um, endeavors where, you know, we really prize in most preschool classrooms, and I would say in kindergarten as well, um, you know, this kind of snappy output. And, and we, I think, you know, we all are focused on that. Like, we want stuff. And it's, I think we need to kind of re-educate ourselves. Well, what's, you know, what's behind that? Is, is the outcome we want 
the thing or is it that we want kids to make meaning? Um, and they can be two very different things. And the other thing about um, an arts-based curriculum that's focused on products is that we tend to assume that each child makes something for their family. Well, that sort of excludes the possibility of real collaboration and joint mm-hmm. problem solving. And when you, you know, instead free yourself of having every single child make the same thing, then you can actually watch kids in action um, collaborating and negotiating, and you see their extraordinary skill um, that takes practice to cultivate, uh, you know, in, in, in problem solving together, listening to each other and sharing ideas and being respectful of other kids' ideas, you know, if, if children are building something together or making a mural or whatever. So I think there's another kind of benefit to freeing ourselves from this sort of factory production model approach to kids' um, so-called craft, you know, that we we actually can expect more of kids, um, which is getting back to that mismatch issue. You know, we can expect a lot more of them uh, when they work together and communicate with one another and learn from each other's ideas. And that uh, that is very exciting to see in classrooms where kids are really doing that. Now, I should note that, that you make it clear in the very beginning of your book that you're not trying to shame or pathologize educators and parents. In fact, uh, about teachers, you say that um, few adults bear as much free-floating scorn as they do, and you compare them to uh, to doctors being held accountable for the obesity epidemic. Um, so as a teacher myself, I was interested in how society views our profession. And while I agree that teachers are often held responsible for things outside of their control, I'm wondering about what aspects of student success are within their immediate sphere of influence. Um, could you share with us what would be a more realistic expectation for our teachers? That's, I mean, that's a wonderful question. And I think it does really vary depending on the age group that you're working with. Mm-hmm. So I will um, speak only to my field, which is early education. I mean, I think one realistic goal is to um, really expect teachers to build relationships, not only with the young child, but with the family. And we have quite a lot of research showing that um, strong family connection is linked to good outcomes in early childhood settings. Uh, And, you know, there are all kinds of reasons for that, particularly in our world today, where more and more families come from a diverse, you know, cultural set of backgrounds. There's just so much greater diversity and in terms of, um, you know, potential mismatch between the teacher's background and the child, whether it's a language barrier or just other barriers, um, or not even barriers, just differences. So I think that we can really hold um, preschool teachers and kindergarten teachers to a standard of really, you know, encouraging them and expecting them to view parents as allies. Now, it's a two-way street because I can say as both a parent and as a former preschool teacher Mm -hmm. and as a former preschool director, you were not all always allies. Um, And parents sometimes, you know, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of defensiveness. Um, The other thing I say, in addition to teachers being so maligned, uh, parents are very maligned these days. Mm -hmm. And many experts think that we are in a moment historically of just unprecedented uh, expectations of parents. I think I would say particularly mothers, you know, we just expect so much from the quality of the interactions and the amount of time that parents spend with their kids, 
you know, while, of course, we've had this huge demographic shift of more and more women in the workforce, we have almost 75% of four-year-olds now in some form of non-family care. So, you know, we've really raised the bar kind of on everybody. You know, we, we expect preschool teachers now often are put in charge of things that were always considered the province of family, like teaching manners and making eye contact or even toilet training. You know, these things are now, you know, very much part of the sort of um, packages things that uh, child care providers have to do. Uh, conversely, parents are, you know, really sort of harangued into providing a stimulating environment and, you know, doing as many activities as possible. Everybody is stressed, I believe, uh, including, of course, the children. You know, we have a lot of evidence that kids are, are very, very stressed. We have um, a growing problem with preschool expulsions. We've got more kids on medication at earlier ages, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the system is not well um, calibrated to maximize these relationships between teachers and, and, uh, and the families and the kids. But I think to your question about what we can hold teachers accountable for, um, it's, it's a complicated question because on the one hand, there's a lot of evidence that the most important um, variable for young kids is really the family environment. And that, that is just, you know, that is true. I mean, it's just not going to change. You know, the, the teacher's impact is still relatively small compared to, um, you know, the child's experience outside of school. And by the way, as you, as you know, as a teacher yourself, I mean, kids aren't even in school very many hours. You know, right. it's a bit of a myth. We often think that kids are in school for a much longer portion of their lives than they are, but it's really about 10% of their of their hours, you know, in a given year. Now with childcare, it's more, but it's still, um, you know, it's still not this huge amount of time that people think it is. Uh, so, you know, I think we can hold teachers responsible, early childhood teachers, for for the, the things that I said are associated with quality. And, and the two biggies are, you know, understanding child development and being able to translate that child development knowledge into curriculum. I think we have to hold people responsible for that. Um, and I think also understanding the child as an individual, not just as a typical four-year-old, but as an individual four-year-old. And that means investing in relationships. I worry quite a bit when I see trends like um, the so-called platooning uh, trend, you know, where kids are now taken out of the classroom to go to specials, like they might go to a math teacher or a science teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, that's happening earlier and earlier. In some school districts, it's now happening in kindergarten. And to me, as a child development person, that worries me because I think that is going to erode um, a relationship that's really central. You know, and if you think about little kids, and I would include kindergartners in this, um, while they're very verbal, you know, they're still kind of in the early days of being able to use their language skills to function in the world and to make their needs and observations known to others. Um, and so I think we have to really protect that, those relationships as much as we can. And so I think, you know, there's some threats to that teacher-child relationship, um, which we need to really be more mindful about. So, yeah, I think, you know, but the problem is, um, and as you were saying, I mean, I really am not interested in pathologizing teachers or parents, and one of the key kind of um, points that I like to make is that, you know, the child's early learning habitat, and I and I use that term deliberately, um, that, that metaphor of sort of habitat loss, you know, the child's playful habitat, their learning habitat has been eroded for all kinds of reasons, and it's really not fair 
to just go after, you know, individual teachers or parents or even groups mm-hmm. of teachers and parents when, you know, there's a whole set of changes in our society that have made it really hard for kids. You know, their, their sort of child-sized habitat has shrunk and been eroded. Um, and to repair that, you know, I, I get very frustrated when I hear people sort of, you know, there's kind of mockery about, um, let's say, helicopter parenting and, you know, parents who are anxious about letting their kids play outside. Well, you know, they're getting all kinds of messages from the media. They also report often that when they want their kids to go play outside, there are no other kids outside to play with. Um, you know, they're getting homework assigned at earlier ages. You know, it's not so easy. And, and for teachers, of course, um, you know, there are more and more pressures to meet um you know, standards that often really are not developmentally appropriate. Um, there was a huge amount of criticism when the Common Core came out, the state standards um, from early childhood developmental specialists and educators, um, you know, really arguing that the kindergarten standards were not, you know, did not reflect what we know about child development. So, you know, there are a lot of, um, it's not easy to be in this environment. Um, and, and I think we, you know, there's some kind of systemic changes we need to make at the policy level and also kind of culturally at the, at the level of, you know, changing our own expectations. Um, and that can be overwhelming, but I think, you know, one way forward is to actually just in our own minds become better observers of young kids, you know, whether we're parents mm-hmm. or teachers. Um, you know, if we, if we actually are clear about what we're seeing in young children, I think that's a pretty good start. You know, which we and we often sort of miss that step. You know, of actually observing children, kind of trying to understand what their experience is like. I, I am wondering if you can say a little bit more about what we can do at the governmental level and what parents can do in less than ideal situations. So I suppose it would be great if um, most children were living in two parent homes, and at least one of those parents was able to work from home or to be with their child all, all the time until they start school. Um, but that's simply not a reality. And so, um, what kinds of policy changes do you advocate for in your book? And, um, what can parents do, um, in the circumstances in which they find themselves? Right. I mean, that's a great question. And, and I will say that, you know, the evidence is actually not really, I mean, it isn't really clear that it would be best in an ideal world for everybody to, you know, be at home with their kids. Mm. I mean, I do want to just throw that out there. Okay. I think they're, um, you know, in fact, there are a lot of different ways for kids to be successful. And I've always argued that, um, you know, a child, you know, learning and schooling are two different things. And really, wherever the child is, the child is capable of learning. And so, at least in theory. Um, and so, you know, we have to be careful, I, I think, not to kind of prejudge, you know, one particular setting or another. Um, it is true that there are kids who really don't benefit as much from, from preschool uh, from even from high quality preschool, and I, I think we have to acknowledge that. You know, it's maybe politically a little bit dicey because parents, of course, need childcare, um, and it's often very expensive. Uh, but you know, it's not necessarily the case that a child needs high quality preschool. Um, maybe they actually would get a better, uh, you know, environment at home. It really depends. So, with that in mind, um, you know, I think what what can we do at the policy level? There's sort of different tiers. I mean, if you go to the, to sort of fantasy land, uh, you know, you have countries like Finland, uh, much of Europe where, you know, they've really made a deep commitment to helping working families, uh, you know, to subsidize heavily in some cases, um, 
childcare, and to really uh, value the learning um, environment in a way that we really do only sporadically in the United States. And that's sort of the, you know, that's like in the wishful thinking department, because right now we're not at a place where our country, you know, we don't have one system of early childhood education. You know, we have a huge uh, patchwork quilt of state programs. Some of them are Mm -hmm. publicly funded. Some of them are private. We have, you know, it's just sort of a dizzying mix. And it's very unrealistic to think that, you know, we're suddenly going to become Finland, um, where I have visited. And, you know, it's a very inspiring place, I have to tell you. Um, It's a wonderful place to be a young child. But that's really not our system, nor, I think, should it be. I mean, we have a much more diverse um, country, and not everybody wants to have a, a sort of Finland-style subsidized government-provided setup. So, you know, if you want to, I think we have to look at what's realistic. So what is realistic? Um, we have to get much better at translating what we know scientifically into the classroom. Right now, we have a huge problem where, and this is true in the healthcare field as well, where it sometimes takes up to a couple of decades to get research into the classroom or into, you know, in in the case of healthcare, um, you know, changing our medical practice. This is really a problem, and it's actually one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, you know, was to do my small part to kind of translate some of these findings. Um, It is not acceptable that kids are having a huge reduction in recess. Um, and outdoor time. You know, it's not acceptable that we are are um, disaggregating our objectives and outcomes so much that it's hard for teachers to allow kids to play with blocks because that somehow doesn't fit into the curriculum. I mean, this is madness. And we need to say loudly and clearly the evidence base shows that um, it's much better to do a pretend grocery store than to sit a child in a chair, and it's now called seat work. I mean, there's actually a term for this, um, and do a worksheet with grocery carts, you know, where you count the pennies or you count the fruit in the grocery cart. Uh, the research base is really clear, and I think parents need to start getting much more active. Honestly, it's a burden on parents. It's not really a fair burden, but they need to go in and really demand. They need to ask questions. You know, where is the research, where is the evidence? for this busy schedule where we've got, you know, 15 minutes of outdoor time and 10 minutes of circle time and, you know, 25 minutes of this and that. I mean, we need to really demand more as parents. And I think teachers need to push back more. Uh, It's hard, but there are some promising signs. Uh, And I think, you know, one of the promising signs is that there there is some – there are some studies that are gaining traction, you know, and I think that things are beginning to break through in the public eye. I, I can tell you that having followed um, policy issues for many years, it's only in the last two or three years that I've seen so much attention in the um, popular press to childcare and early education. You know, that was not true five years ago. And I think it's because there are just more and more children in early childhood settings, you know, in in daycare. Um, And so there's just more traction. You know, parents are more concerned about these issues because more and more families need child care. And so that's actually a really good impetus, you know, to change things. Um, There's a study that just came out of the state of Tennessee that had some very troubling um, results showing that that the way um, 
most preschools operate in Tennessee and probably, according to the researchers in much of the country, um, it, we're not getting the results we want. You know, in fact, in the Tennessee study, the kids who were um, attending the state-funded pre-K actually did worse uh, by, I think it was second or third grade, academically and behaviorally, they did worse than their matched, you know, control kids who didn't attend the program. That's very damning evidence. It got a lot of um, attention in the media, and a lot of parents are starting to look at things like this, reading articles. Um, so I think there is sort of, a, I don't know, an inflection point right now where there's a moment uh, where parents can be more empowered, I think teachers too, and, and to kind of advocate for more and to ask, well, you know, you're saying there's no time in the schedule. I'm just curious why. You know, wh- what is the schedule? What, what What's the barrier? You know, this is preschool. I mean, we, you know, what is the barrier? Why can't we have more of X, Y, and Z, you know, playful, exploratory relationship-based learning? A lot of times um, preschool directors or principals will say, oh, we really want this, but we just don't have the time and the schedule. We can't do this. We have to meet all these standards. I think we need better answers than that. I think we've reached a point right now politically and culturally where that answer doesn't really um, fit, you know. I think we need part two. Okay, well, why, you know, why? Um, and sometimes the answer is that teachers aren't trained to um, leverage the kind of incredible capacity of children. You know, it's much mm-hmm. easier if you're not well-paid and if you're not well-mentored, if you're not well-trained, if you don't have um, colleagues that you can collaborate with and talk to about best practices and how to improve or, you know, about your observations that you're making. If you don't have the infrastructure to be a reflective teacher, um, it's a lot easier to give a teacher like that a script, you know, to follow, to say, okay, today is Monday, and so we're going to learn the letter P, and we're going to do activities, um, we're going to make pretend peanut butter sandwiches, and we're going to, whatever, you know, we're going to only draw with purple crayons. I mean, that kind of curriculum, which is very artificial and quite shallow, is unfortunately an easier way to teach if you don't have the training and the support to foster rich, imaginative um, relationship-based learning. And so that is, you know, what I would call a workforce problem that we're foisting on young kids. And that's not, that's really not a winning strategy for anybody. Um, and so I think we need to, to make changes. And to be fair, I think that, that there are a lot of states that are really looking closely at this, and there are a lot of researchers who are trying to unpack this. Um, at Yale, where I work, uh, my colleagues, um, Walter Gilliam and others, are really looking in depth at uh, measures of quality teaching and, you know, how we can scale up. Um, just as one example, there is a big problem with these preschool expulsions, which disproportionately mm-hmm. affect lower income kids and children in, well, children in poverty and children of color. Uh, and of course, when you remove a child from preschool, I mean, you're doing the opposite of, you know, often it's the kids who are most at risk who, who need preschool the most. And, uh, you know, by taking them out, that's just setting them up for a lifetime of disaster. And my colleagues at Yale, um, such as Walter Gilliam, are working on models of getting uh, mental health consultation in the classroom to avoid expulsion. I think there are a lot of promising um, 
you know, there are a lot of promising models. That's worked in the state of Connecticut. They did a randomized trial and found that um, that it was really effective. And in the long term, my guess is that that would be cost effective as well, because if you can prevent a child from failing downstream, you know, that that's a really meaningful thing. So I think there are a lot of models that we need to explore and we need to study in more detail. Another thing we need to look at is uh, the dose of quality. You know, some of the really landmark studies from a long time ago that are cited repeatedly as evidence that preschool is effective, you know, they actually don't look like what preschool looks like now. Um, One of the most famous studies, the Perry Preschool Program, that's frequently cited as evidence for the power of preschool, it actually was a really small dose. It was about two and a half hours a day, so maybe 10 hours a week, of very high-quality um, preschool with, you know, very educated, motivated, well-supported teachers. Um, so it was like 10 hours a week. And then I think they had one family visit. Um, you know, I don't remember if it was monthly or weekly, but uh, that's not at all what preschool looks like for the vast, vast majority of kids who are probably in a less, or, or who are, in fact, um, not just probably, who are in a lower quality, um, but with a higher dose. And so we need to, um, you know, we haven't really studied this in in detail yet, but we need to do more studies that really look at dosage. Because if we found, for example, that a smaller dose of the higher quality is really what makes a difference, particularly for kids in poverty, well, that that suggests a different solution. You know, parents, they need childcare for a, a long period of the day, and that's not in dispute. But what level of quality, um, you know, is it possible to imagine that that maybe two or three hours of really high quality, you know, very intensely relationship-based, mm-hmm. oratory, et cetera, you know, maybe the rest of the day um, we loosen that child-teacher ratio, you know, and have it be more of a kind of, I don't know, camp counselor environment. Now, when people hear this, they sort of freak out because we've all been sensitized to believe that, um, you know, ratios are very important. And, you know, again, in my fantasy world, I would love to have, you know, eight hours or nine hours of super high quality and great ratios and all of that. But if we're looking at how to make policy changes that will have the best, you know, most bang for the buck, you know, we maybe need to get more creative about how we view the child's day. Because just because parents need child care, for let's say eight or nine hours a day doesn't mean that children need institutional care in the way that it's currently delivered for eight or nine hours of the day, you know? And if you think about, I mean, I've been a stay-at-home parent as well as a working parent, so I kind of run the gamut, you know, in terms of like hours out of the home and um, I've been a part-time worker, a full-time worker, et cetera. And I certainly remember in my stay-at-home parenting days I was not giving my kids, you know, nine hours a day of this, like, super intensive um, relationship-based learning. I mean, I just wasn't. You know, there were times when I really wasn't doing anything of that kind. Uh, And so I think sometimes we have to, you know, we may need to sort of retrain ourselves. But what is a sort of natural day for a child? And can we try to mimic some of that? You know, because there's a lot of time in a young child's day when they're at home on weekends, for example, where, you know, they're with their families and they're loved and they're securely uh, cared for, we hope. Um, But they're not necessarily having this one-on-one, you know, super high-quality, stimulating interaction. Um, So I think 
my guess is that we need to be much more creative. I, and it's possible that we may conclude that we need a higher, do, uh, uh, sorry, a lower dose of high quality uh, rather than what we have now, which is sort of a heavy dose of mediocre or poor quality. Um, and those questions still need to be answered by science, um, by, by ed, you know, by education researchers and psychologists who are doing research on these things. Um, and so, you know, we need more research, but we also need to get the research that we have into the classroom. And, and I do believe that parents have a role to play in this because, you know, honestly, it's being covered so much more in the popular press. And I think the more that parents kind of put the um, I was going to say put the screws on, I don't mean it that way, but, you know, put some pressure on on school systems and preschools uh, and teachers, you know, in a, in a diplomatic and gentle way. But, you know, look, we're not seeing the play-based um, program that we know from what we read is associated with the good outcomes we all want. You know, how can we help? Is there something we can do? And maybe it's like what you said. You know, maybe it's some of it. It's just small tweaks. You know, mm-hmm. maybe a classroom gets together at the beginning of the year and they say to the teacher, you know, just so you know, we don't need to have those refrigerator art projects every day or even every week. You know, we're with you. Like, we, we want to work with you. You know, we're, we're really invested in our kids learning and being safe and happy and thriving. Um, you tell us, you know, in your ideal world, what would that look like? Uh, there's a collaboration that I think teachers and parents can uh, push for, and, and we aren't really doing that as much as we should. Oh, I think that would help a lot. Uh, that certainly would take some pressure off teachers. Um, before before we run out of time, I was wondering if, if you could say a little bit about what might happen if, if we don't address these um, these issues with our preschools. What are possible long-term consequences for our kids as they grow up through school and become adults? You know, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't make um, definitive statements, but we have some hints that we should be concerned. I like to say that children are working harder but learning less, Mm -hmm. and I do think there's some evidence of that. I think the Tennessee study is sort of a wake-up call that kids, um, the, the researchers behind that study hypothesized that, you know, one of the reasons that some of the kids who attended these um, preschool programs um, in Tennessee, you know, who did worse later on academically and emotionally, um, they hypothesized that they were just burned out and bored and turned off by learning because so much of the learning was rote, you know, the sort of calendar activities that I described and the um, kind of shallow, you know, naming and labeling sort of approach to curriculum and so on. Um, if this is if this is emblematic, which I believe it is, of, of many other programs, um, you know, and it's interesting, a lot of people responded to that study quite defensively and said, oh, well, you know, that was terribly poor quality. But actually, the researchers pointed out that, you know, it really wasn't any different quality-wise than, you know, the great majority of programs. So if we are seeing um, not only that it's not helping, but it might actually be hurting kids downstream academically and emotionally, we need to really get serious about that. Because what I'm worried about now is that we're going for these short-term outcomes um, you know, like rattling off two plus two equals four, not really understanding what um, that concept of number really is, uh, which for children comes from interactions with the world and experimenting with numbers, not just reading them off a sheet of paper. Um, if we don't get serious about that, we're going to have shallow learning uh, that trips kids up, uh, as we're seeing in Tennessee later on, when they have to think more creatively and when they have to problem solve, think critically, um, use complex vocabulary that isn't just 
connected to some kind of random curriculum unit, but really reflects a depth of knowledge and a facility with language that we know comes from conversation. So I think we have to worry about that. Um, the good news is that we can counteract so much of what's ineffective in classrooms at home, you know, and it really is, it, it is a win-win because it, it doesn't require parents to sit at home drilling their kids pedantically on letter awareness. It requires the opposite, which is it requires parents to, you know, get to know their child and enjoy their child and play with their child or give their child a chance to play with other kids. That I think that's the positive message that, um, you know, in a way the solution is quite an old-fashioned one and it's quite liberating for parents, I think. Um, but I do believe that we need to take seriously some of these studies that are coming out now showing that we have taken a, we've, we've sort of uh, adopted a, you know, maybe short-term wise but long-term foolish uh, approach. I'm not even sure it's short-term wise, quite frankly, because so many kids are stressed um, by the changes that have happened. And to be clear, there really have been serious changes in the way that um, kids, are, are being educated in, in preschools and, and kindergartens. You know, kindergarten 20 or 30 years ago did not have the expectation that kids needed to read. Uh, one study showed that, um, I think it was 20 years ago, maybe in the 90s, um, you know, like 30% of kindergarten teachers thought that kids should know how to read by the end of kindergarten or, or you know, know the beginnings of reading by the end of kindergarten. And now it's about 80%. Well, that's a really massive shift in expectations. And, of course, those expectations for academic achievement then trickle down to preschool. And that's where we see the kind of rote learning. I mean, there was one classroom um, featured in, in the book where, you know, the teacher is reading the commas out loud. You know, she's saying polar bear, polar bear, comma, uh, or question mark. You know, what do you, what do you hear, question mark? You know, reading it out loud is a completely bizarre way that, you know, is so off-putting to a child who just wants to hear a story, um, and that teacher really believed that she had to focus on the question marks, um, that's missing the forest for the trees. You know, that is short-term wise, long-term foolish. Uh, and and we, we really do have some scientific evidence from a number, number of places. Um, you know, another pretty kind of damning result was that um, the U.S. government put a lot of funding behind... Um, an almost exclusive focus on, on phonics instruction, on, on so-called decoding skills, um, and they, it was called Reading First. Big effort to help um, kids, particularly in poverty, uh, you know, to, to learn to read. Well, it turned out that the, the results were really terrible, um, and there was kind of a rebuke to this by a lot of the leading lights in early education in the literacy world who said, you know, the foundation of reading is actually oral language. You know, it's mm -hmm. talking and listening. It's being a human being in the world. Um, and that the phonics knowledge is important, but that is actually secondary to the primary foundation for young kids, which is, is learning how to talk and listen and be engaged in ideas and be interested in vocabulary. And if you look at, you know, if you, anyone who's had a three-year-old who's obsessed with trucks, you know, uh, or airplanes at the airport, you know, you know that little kids at that age get very obsessed and they develop extremely particular and quite sophisticated vocabularies about these specialized, mm -hmm. you know, my, one of my kids was obsessed with sharks. And I mean, I knew every name of every weird shark, you know, I can still 
recite them, you know, Port Jackson sharks and bonnethead sharks and, you know, things that I never think about as an adult. But little kids, when they're engaged in something, when they care about something, they develop really sophisticated language. Uh, and that is, that is really central to, um, to reading and to be able to read um, in order to gain information and to problem solve. You know, that we can't shortchange, we can't short circuit that process. So I think we have some cause for alarm if we keep going on the track run now where we have, you know, this kind of superficial uh, checklist approach to curriculum, which, you know, makes us feel good. Uh, and to be fair, I think this change in the way kids are being educated, it did come from a good place in the sense that there was a lot of concern, and there still is, about closing so-called ability gaps between, um, uh, you know, disadvantaged kids, for lack of a better word, and, and more advantaged kids. Um, you know, these are real concerns, and, and the people and the policies that have have um, focused on, on what I'm calling shallow learning, I, I mean, it came from a good place, you know, a, a real desire to kind of, you know, close that gap, particularly around language um, that opens up and really widens, you know, at a very early age, you know, by by two years old, I mean, you know, kids from wealthier families know many, many more words, or even, I think, way before age two, um, than kids on average who live in poverty. Of course, there are exceptions. Um, you know, those are concerns, and I don't mean to, dis you know, to dismiss them, but the research base is showing more and more that our our answers to these problems are, are possibly making things worse, you know, and, and I think we need to worry about that. But Parents can take um, some comfort in in this sort of paradoxical reality that, um, in some ways, backing off on all these anxieties can actually help to close the gap. You know, because the fuel for learning for young children, the most important fuel for learning, is uh, relationships. You know, as, as hokey as that sounds, it's really true and it's really supported by science. And uh, it, it, all parents. You know, no matter what their circumstances, I mean, some families have many, many more challenges than others. You know, if they're working multiple jobs or they are depressed. Um, you know, there was one study in New Haven showing that 40% of mothers, low-income mothers, were depressed. Uh, you know, that is a real barrier to strengthening the relationship with your child. You yourself are are clinically depressed. So I don't mean to, um, you know, I, I think we need to be mindful that it's it's hard for many parents um, to to be the kind of parent they want to be. But nonetheless, uh, there's so many small sort of tweaks that we can all make um, to strengthen the relationships we have with our kids. And and that really is available to everybody, you know, whether or not you're in a great preschool program or not. Well, Erica, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just want to ask you one more question, and that's what are you working on right now? <laughs> you know, that's a question that everyone is asking me. And, uh -huh. um, I don't have an answer I'm prepared to discuss right now because, okay. and I know that sounds very coy and annoying, but it's mainly because <laughs> I don't know myself. Um, I am really, really interested in sort of some kind of part two to this. You know, mm -hmm. the first book was really trying to open people's eyes to the world of young childhood, of early childhood. Um, and so it was necessarily kind of a broad um, brush approach. You know, there were a lot of topics that I didn't get into. One that has a lot of meaning to me personally is um, the role of nature in learning. 
and uh, you know how we can sort of strengthen children's um, engagement with nature, how families can get more connected to the natural world as a sort of fuel source for learning and for well-being. Um, I don't, you know, there are a lot of different issues similar to that that I'm working on. But um, you know, I, I know for sure my future includes uh, more advocacy for kids and um, and more writing. Great. Well, I, I certainly enjoyed uh, reading this book, and so I hope uh, I look forward to the sequel. Um, well, thank you very much. <laughs> I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I did, too. Thank you so much for right. having me. Thank you.